What I intend to do is talk about the Messiah, talk about Joseph, talk about Judah, and we'll do it tonight. And if we still got stuff to say, we'll do it next week. And if we still have stuff to say after that, we'll do it the week after. We'll just sort of let this go as long as it goes. The book I'm using is Messiah Ben Joseph by David Mitchell. Don't know him. I am a little less than halfway through the book at this point. And he brought up enough good stuff at this point that I felt that it was probably worth starting to teach. I am relying on his scholarship for some stuff. And he said some stuff that I can check myself. And he said some stuff I haven't checked myself. So I will warn you right up front that some of this I am relying on him in this book. And so if it turns out to be wrong and I find out it's wrong, I'll come back and correct it. It's sort of like the first time I heard the gospel in Genesis, where descendants from Adam, Hebrew meaning of their names, lays out the gospel. And I went and got myself a Hebrew root dictionary, and I checked them, and lo and behold, that's absolutely correct, so I'm very comfortable saying that. This one I am also pretty comfortable because what he's saying is reasonable, but I'm relying on his scholarship. The thing that started me off is the blessings of the tribes. The first one, of course, is in Genesis 49, where Jacob blesses his sons. And then the next one is Deuteronomy 33, where Moses prophesies over the 12 tribes. There are some differences in there. You know, I've read it for years. I've been through the Torah portion now for 30-some-odd years, and I read it every year. And he pointed some things out, and I went, oh, wow. Those things I did check, and he's absolutely correct. And that's what got me excited about this, because there's some insights in there that I had never realized. Uh, the book is called Messiah Ben Joseph. I have known about Messiah Ben Joseph for decades, never really studied it. And the idea of Messiah ben Joseph is that there's two messiahs. There's the messiah who is a descendant of Joseph who comes and dies. And then there's the messiah, the son of Judah, who comes to reign. And standard Christian theology is Yeshua on his first trip came as Messiah ben Joseph because he was the son of Joseph. As in Luke it says, he is the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So he would have been then Messiah ben Joseph, and he did die. There's some things about Messiah ben Joseph that he didn't do. And then, of course, standard Christian theology is when he comes back the second time, he'll come back on a white horse at the head of an army, and he'll rule and reign as Messiah ben David or Messiah ben Judah. So that's... What I used to know about Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. So, let's go and look at the Deuteronomy passage and the Genesis passage. And take them in order. We'll start with the Genesis passage. So, I'm in Genesis 49. And in verse 8 is where Judah is mentioned. So, this is Jacob blessing his sons. So Judah 
your brothers shall praise you. Of course, Judah means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, or until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now here's where it gets interesting. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. All right, now we're just going to hold that for a minute. Go down and read Joseph and then talk about the two. Joseph is toward the end, and that's verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. And his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Now first, this fruitful bough is a vine. Judah ties his colt to a vine. I had never caught that before. Obvious once you see it, but it wasn't obvious initially. And of course, the Judah passage takes you to Revelation 19. Pick it up in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So eyes like a flame of fire. Judah back here has his eyes darker than wine. So the idea is his eyes are distinctive, if you will. And what I'm suggesting to you is the rider on the white horse in Revelation has eyes like a flame of fire, and he's followed by an army clothed in white. So the army are teeth. The teeth of the Messiah is his army, and they are all clothed in white. And so what you have is, if you will, the same imagery, recognizing that you've changed from Hebrew to Greek. The first thing is... The symbol of Judah is a lion, and this idea of him tying his donkey to a vine moves you down to Joseph. And then Joseph is a fruitful bough or vine by a spring, his branch runs over the wall. As we get into Psalms, you're going to see that God planted a vine in Egypt, and it's 
branches went out toward Lebanon. So that tells you that we're talking about Joseph. The symbolism is the same in both cases. Let me give you an alternate translation on verse 26. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. The blessing of his parents is the blessing of Abraham and the blessing of Isaac. So Jacob is saying that his blessing is more mighty than the blessing of Abraham and Isaac. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills may they be upon the head of Joseph on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And you can also read that as chosen. I have always read that as Joseph was the guy that got sent down to Egypt and so he was separated from his brothers. It can also be the one who is preferred over his brothers. Now, where I'm going to go next is Deuteronomy 33, and we got some major changes. And we'll start with Judah, which is in verse 7. So I'm in Deuteronomy 33, 7. And he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. Bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. That's it. That's everything that's said about Judah in Deuteronomy. Because remember in Genesis, you had that he was going to be ruling over his brothers and all that kind of thing. In Deuteronomy, it shrinks down to, well, just make him successful. And a whole bunch of the stuff that was mentioned back in Genesis is not mentioned. So now let's go down to the blessing of Joseph. We're down in verse 13. And of Joseph he said, Blessed by the Lord be his land, with the choicest gifts of heaven above, and of the deep that crouches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun, and the rich yield of the months. May the finest produce of the ancient mountains, and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth, and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwells in the bush, him who dwells in the bush, remember that's the burning bush. It's not like somebody has gone out and become a wild man. That's a metaphor for the God who spoke to me out of the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. Joseph here is prince among his brothers, whereas back in Genesis, Judah was prince among his brothers. Verse 17, a firstborn bull, he has majesty and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. The thing that smacked me upside the head is firstborn bull and wild ox are completely different species of animals. And they're different in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, a firstling bull is shero, shin, vav, resh, vav. And that's a domestic animal. The wild ox is a ram, resh, aleph, mem, different animal. Let me show you the difference between them. What we have here is a comparison of an auric on the left with a domestic cow on the right. Aurochs are extinct. They are wild cows that were once native to Europe, North Africa, Middle East, 
Asia, and so forth. They were driven extinct. They stand about six feet tall at the shoulder and they have a bad attitude. They can't be domesticated or they couldn't be domesticated. Interestingly, one of Hitler's little projects was to backbreed domestic cattle and try and recreate the aurochs. That did succeed after he died. And there is a herd of aurochs in Great Britain. And one of the things that they have done is killed a couple of their keepers. These are not Holsteins that have wandered off the farm and into the woods. These are something completely different. The closest equivalent here would be our buffalo, who are also about the same height, a little bit different configuration, also have a bad attitude. So there's an arc as compared to a man. When I first read this, years and years and years ago, and every year since, I was thinking, we got a Holstein that's gone feral, and out in the woods somewhere, not realizing what was going on. Now, a couple of other things about this. Verse 17 again. A firstborn bull, we just read in Exodus on Shabbat, what is the destiny of a firstborn bull? It's a sacrifice. All the firstlings of your herds and your flocks are sacrificed. So the idea that he is a firstborn bull indicates that he is a sacrifice. The fact that he is an arc indicates that he is a military commander. So you have two things going on here. One is you have a military commander, and the other one is you have a sacrifice. Now, the prototype, if you will, for Joseph in Deuteronomy is Joshua, because Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim, Joseph. Joshua was a military commander. He's the one that led the Israelites in driving the Canaanites out of the land and settling the place. He did not die in the process, but he's sort of the archetype, if you will. Going back now for a second to Genesis 49, I'm down in verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. So the idea here is he is being attacked, harassed, and most commentaries talk about that in terms of his brothers having jumped him and sold him into Egypt. But as he is being attacked by archers, his bow remains steady. He fights back. And a different translation may help that. Verse 23 again. The archers bitterly assailed him. They shot at him and harried him. Yet his bow stayed taut, and his arms were made firm by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. There, the shepherd, the rock of Israel. So the idea is he is a warrior in both places, and he is a strong warrior, and furthermore, he is a shepherd, and he is a rock of Israel. I have read this for 30 years and just sort of blew by it until this guy grabbed me and, and took me through it one by one. This is prophetic 
as well as in some sense being historical. So lots of people interpret the archers shooting at him as his brothers when they sold him into slavery. It can also be prophetic. And certainly Deuteronomy is prophetic. So, symbolism. Joseph, fruitful vine running over the wall. A fruitful agricultural plant that spreads its blessing. A warrior, archer, a shepherd. He is set apart. Elect is the word that one translation uses. He's a firstling bull, which is to say he's a sacrifice. He is a wild ox. And with his horns, by the way, he gores the nations. So he's not just king over Israel. He is going to be a conqueror over the nations. The other thing we're going to see in one of the Psalms is the one of the right hand. That is not Benjamin. That is Ephraim. Because remember the crossed hands blessing? You can confuse with Benjamin, who is the son of my right hand. But the one under the right hand is Ephraim. So as you see these symbols in the Psalms, what you should do is think back to the descriptions of Judah and Joseph. So Judah's symbols. The lion. The scepter. A foal bound to the vine. And of course, we see that at the triumphal entry. Blood, in this case of grapes or in revelation of his enemies. His eyes like a flame of fire and his teeth whiter than milk. Those are symbols, if you will, of Judah. One of the things I found as I was starting to go through this and I was doing independent checking on the internet The Mormons seem to be big into Messiah ben Joseph. don't know much at all about Mormon theology. I'm not qualified to comment. But I did go through one YouTube video where a Mormon Bible teacher was talking about Messiah ben Joseph, and he was saying, that's Joseph Smith. I am not an expert in their theology, but I just found it kind of fascinating that it's apparently a respectable line of thought in Mormon like Jews, I don't have any idea how many opinions there are. Comment was that apparently the Book of Mormon is somewhat similar to the Jewish rabbinic writings in that they've got decisions of lots and lots of leaders over the years that have been incorporated into Scripture. And if it's there, then it's probably respectable. I know almost next to nothing about Mormons, so I'm not commenting on it. I'm, I am simply mentioning that as I was looking up Messiah ben Joseph, I kept running into Mormon sites. Do with that whatever seems good to you. So what we're going to do is Psalms. And here again, I am relying on uh, Mr. Mitchell's scholarship. And one of the things that he says is that the Psalms were organized into a book about 500 B.C., That isn't to say that the Psalms were written 500 B.C. The Psalms were written over many years and earlier, and getting them together, organizing them, you know, putting numbers on them, that kind of thing, happened about 500 B.C. That was after the Babylonian exile. And one of the things that he says, and I have checked this and it's correct, 
is the Psalms between 60 and 108 are very heavy with references to Joseph. One of the comments that he made is that the organizer of the book of Psalms would have been a Jew. Ephraim was gone. Ephraim had been a rival kingdom for a long time. So the fact that the Psalms that mention Joseph, either by symbolism or by name, are all clustered in a wad in the middle of the book. So between 60 and 108 are the Psalms having to do with Joseph, and they're right in the middle of the book and all packed together. Interestingly, that's where you find the Psalms of the sons of Korah, and you also find most of the Psalms of Asaph in that same section. Korah and Asaph were both Levites, and they were both primarily in the northern kingdom later on when the kingdom split. Interestingly, you all have been here long enough, you've heard the story of Korah, where Korah rebels against Moses, and Moses says, if I'm the leader, then split the ground open. One of the things that's sort of a theme of the sons of Korah is going down into the pit and being raised up from the pit. For example, in Psalm 46, the phrase that the earth gives way shows up. So in the Psalms of Korah, you have these things of going down into the pit, being raised up from the pit, and it's sort of, if not a theme, it certainly (laughs) plays fairly prominently in the Psalms they wrote. And then all except one of the Psalms of Asaph are in this band from 60 to 108. He is one of the major people who mentions Joseph by name. And in Psalm 80, he talks about Joseph and the spreading vine, if you will. Again, the imagery and so forth. What would be called a Josephite psalm. So then we have a chiasm. Psalm 60 is the first of the psalms in this band in the middle. It's a psalm of David. And where I want to be is down in verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Remember, one of the symbols of Judah is the scepter. All the places he has mentioned are in Ephraim. Shechem, the vale of Sukkot, Gilead, Manasseh, Ephraim, those are all in the northern kingdom. Well, when David was writing those, it was not the northern kingdom, but they are in what would eventually become the northern kingdom. And this is the first mention of those areas which are Josephite areas by name. So Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with your armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So now keep in mind verses 6 through 12, and then we're going to go to Psalm 108, down to verse 7. God has promised in his holiness, with exaltation I will divide up Shechem, and portion out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. 
Moab is my wash basin upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, shout, sound familiar? So the end of Psalm 60 and the end of Psalm 108 are virtually identical. In between those are what Mitchell calls Josephite Psalms, which is Psalms where Joseph is mentioned as opposed to somebody else. Now, one other thing before we go on. So the idea that they were compiled into a book and organized in 500 BC after the Babylonian exile, Ephraim is gone. The northern kingdom has disappeared. Judah has been taken into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. And what he says, and the rabbis agree with this, by the way, that the entire book of Psalms is intended to be messianic in nature. It all has to do with the restoration of Israel under a Messiah. And what we have in there are two Messiahs, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, and the Messiah, the son of David. But the idea of the entire book of Psalms is basically to buck up the Israelites saying, we're going to get back, we're going to be restored to our country, we're going to have somebody come and take us out of the nations, we're going to have a Messiah, he's going to rule the earth. And that's sort of, if you will, an overarching theme of the book. Now, obviously not every psalm talks about that, but it's a theme of the book, if you will. And it starts off in Psalm 2. Actually, Psalm 1, because some people say 1 and 2 are, in fact, continuous. So let's go to Psalm 1 and 2, and we'll see if we can get through those tonight. And before I do that, let me read you a rabbinic commentary on Psalm 2. Rabbinic literature frequently associates Psalm 2 with Messiah ben Joseph. For instance, Pirkei de Rabbi Eleazar cites verse 2 as follows. Menachem ben Amiel ben Joseph, all the kings will rise up against him to slay him. As it is said, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the eternal and against his anointed. So the idea that the rabbis see Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm, which is obvious, and they also see the Messiah there as ben Joseph. And again, not Everyone does. It's two Jews, three opinions, and so forth. So let's start with Psalm 1, and I'm just going to read one, and then we'll dive into two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And verse 3, tree planted by streams of water yields its fruit in its season. All he does prospers. That could certainly be Joseph. It could also just be a general blessing, but it does describe Joseph. Everything he touched prospered. Not on Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Does that sound like archers shooting at Joseph? So against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, the Lord and his anointed, the Lord and his Messiah, the idea here is that the Messiah is in fact ruling because the kings of the earth want to break his rule. The idea of the kings of the earth breaking his rule wouldn't apply right now because the kings of the earth are not under the rule of the Messiah. But we know from Revelation that when Yeshua rules on the earth that the nations will conspire against him at the end of the thousand year reign and will conspire to break his bonds asunder. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, it's been several years since we've done this. What we're going to do is we're going to take this psalm apart. What it is is a conversation in three voices. And things that seem like skips in a record are actually voice changes. So you have three voices. You have the narrator. You have the voice of the king, the voice of God. And you have the voice of the son. So starts off with the narrator, who I'm going to suggest is the Holy Spirit. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, this is actually a fourth voice, which is the kings of the earth, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Close quote. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying. So now the voice is going to change to God the Father. So this is God the Father, quote, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Close quote. So God speaks and he tells the kings of the earth that he has set his king on Zion. Verse 7 voice of the Son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. That's the voice of God. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them in pieces with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse seven and a half where it says you are my son to nine 
gospel is the word of God talking to his son. So verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Me there is the son. The comment was that you can also read this. The son starts in verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me and then the son is quoting the father. So it's all the voice of the son. So 7 through 9 is the voice of the son. I have no problem with that at all. And then verse 10, we go back to the narrator, who I believe, as I said, is the spirit. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's our first messianic psalm, if you will. And as I read from Mitchell here, both Jews and Christians see it as messianic. I I think it's pretty obviously messianic. What I didn't know until I read Mitchell's voice is there's apparently a respectable line of Jewish thought that this is the Messiah, the son of Joseph. I had always taken it as Messiah, the son of David. And I have read in various places that some people think one and two are one psalm in verse 3 of Psalm 1, you have images that could be interpreted as referring to Joseph. Because you remember the blessings of Joseph, both in Genesis and Deuteronomy, emphasize fruitfulness, bounty, abundance, all that kind of thing. So do with that as seems good to you.